1: Hi there, and welcome to the Explaining History podcast. Um, Today I'm in a slightly reflective mood, and I'm thinking a lot about some stuff I'm writing um, about the Battle of the Coral Sea and the Kokoda Trail campaign uh, that took place during 1942. And some of the things that really it shows us and indicates about Japan as an adversary to the West uh, after her initial phase of lightning victories throughout Southeast Asia in December, between December forty one and February forty two, there is a quote from the uh, prestigious Japanese Admiral Isoroku Yamamoto, which, in some ways, is very revealing and tells us a lot about um, not just his uh, but other, particularly naval um, officers' thinking at the time. This thinking wasn't necessarily shared by the army, um, who were the real power uh, in Tokyo and had effectively surrounded the emperor with their influence. Anyway, Yamamoto says, In the first six to twelve months of a war with the United States and Great Britain, I will run wild and win victory upon victory. But then, if the war continues after that, I have no expectation of success. Yamamoto saw the Pacific War uh, following Pearl Harbor as being one which in, in, had to be won quickly, uh, very much uh, in the way that many of the German high command uh, saw their war. The idea of uh, of a long struggle that uh, Hitler eventually comes to rather favour is an anathema to many German generals and senior officers who you know that Germany just hasn't got the resources to fight on, that, on in that way. The uh, Germans and Japanese both had um, looked at the, the previous campaigns of uh, Britain and America in, in World War I and wars during the 19th century and known that uh, the British and the Americans would be inclined to hunker in for a long fight. And this must be prevented in the eyes of Yamamoto. One of his motivations for the Battle of Midway was to draw out the American carriers and to defeat them so comprehensively that the Americans would be forced to come to some kind of peace treaty. And he he quotes again, Should hostilities once break out between Japan and the United States, it is not enough that we take Guam and the Philippines, nor even Hawaii and San Francisco. To make victory certain, we would have to march into Washington and dictate the terms of peace in the White House. I wonder if our politicians, among whom armchair arguments about war are being glibly bandied about in the name of state politics, have confidence as to the final outcome and are prepared to make the necessary sacrifices. Now this could possibly be read as a cautionary tone from Yamamoto suggesting that really... um, war with America was no small undertaking and really needed to be thought about in great depth. Yamamoto believed however that he could win the war quickly but um, ultimately the strategy that he employs at Midway um, of separating his um, carrier from his battleship forces and this uh, in very classic Japanese naval formation Um, does him no favours, it disperses his force and then when by pure chance his four carriers are caught by a third wave of American bombers who almost stumble across them, uh, they are all quickly sunk due to the uh, various um, confusions and poor decisions of Nagumo, Nagumo, his uh, admiral who was tasked with the carrier task force. Now, I don't really want to go into a, a great dissection of the Battle of Midway. Um, I've got an ebook coming out shortly, Red Sun at War Part 3, where you can read all about that. Um, there, there's a different point that I want to make today, and it's really uh, about the, the interesting nature of Japan's surprise... Um, a race through the Far East from uh, the uh, from December 1941 to about February 1942, and the uh, capitulation of uh, much of Britain's Asian Empire and of the the Dutch East Indies. Now, this happens rarely, and I've discussed this before. This happens really because. Um, from the mid-1930s onwards, imperial defences are incredibly weak in the Far East. There isn't the money to pay for it. The best men who could have organised the defence have all died on the battlefields of World War One, And um, the British Empire particularly is perhaps overextended and is experiencing a you know, terminal decline. There's unrest in India. They have expanded into a rather troublesome part of the Middle East. And um, the um, Britain herself is going to made a major economic downturn in the early nineteen thirties, so the uh, colonies such as Burma, Malaya, and uh, Singapore were all ripe for the taking and the The Japanese looked to um march from Burma into India and thus bring about a nationalist revolution and uh, clear the British out of India uh, for good they had no no they were under no illusions that they could occupy India themselves. But they believe that um, Indian nationalists, who were allied to the Japanese, would uh, would would help to uh, completely force the British out of Asia uh, permanently. Um, so their there is a steamroller through uh, the uh, rather rickety uh, British Southeast Asian Empire, uh, is done through uh, uh, excellent timing, um, initiative, um, and the, the fact that the, the British are fundamentally weak. But that steamroller starts to very quickly um, encounter serious troubles as it pushes south in order to protect... This new uh, greater Southeast Asian co-prosperity sphere, this new Japanese empire, which stretches from Burma, really through to the Solomon Islands, and from Papua New Guinea, all the way up to Japan itself. Um, the, the, The Japanese know that they have to isolate Australia. Australia is going to become a great launch pad for the Americans. Once uh, MacArthur retires to Australia early in 1942 after he uh, abandons his men at uh, Bataan um, and comes to Australia and began begins to build up his uh, command center there and fresh divisions of American troops sailing from the west coast of America come to Australia uh, fairly quickly afterwards. So the Japanese know, probably within six months, MacArthur will have a fighting force that he can take to um, New Guinea and then the Philippines beyond it. So cutting off Australia um, by dominating the islands around her, uh, from Papua New Guinea to the Solomons to New Britain and New Ireland, and they were planning to take Fiji and Samoa as well, um, would help to cut off the sea lanes, and you can fly bombers from those islands and uh, destroy any uh, any transports coming in. This would have been the nightmare scenario for Australia. Australia probably wasn't going to be invaded. It look, looks more than likely, looking at the um, uh, the, in, the the information left behind uh, by. Um, Prime Minister Tojo and his regime, and particularly Tojo said this during his trial, um, that ultimately they had been long decided not to bother with invading Australia, and it was um, too big a challenge uh, even for the, uh, the Japanese. However, Australia, had it been cut off, would have simply become an irrelevance and perhaps even been starved into some kind of submission. So it didn't mean to say, you know, the isolation of Australia, didn't mean to say that Australia was going to emerge unscathed from the war. Um, Japan's decision to uh, land troops at Port Moresby was part of this campaign, and the destruction um, of part of Japan's fleet during the Battle of the Coral Sea postponed the landing. So instead, um, Port Moresby. By the way, for those who aren't geography students, Port Moresby is on the southern side of um, New Guinea, and again could have been a base for um, bombing uh, all the, the northern territories of Australia and um, keeping the, the the northern territory in Queensland completely isolated. So and uh, preventing ships from landing there. Um, so the seizure, the failure to seize Port Moresby. Um, and the, following that, the subsequent Battle of Midway, where the American carriers aren't destroyed, in fact the Japanese ones are, is a you know, a turning point in the war, in that it, it was thought that this would prevent the forward march of the Japanese southwards. But ultimately it doesn't. The Japanese then land at Buna in the north uh, of Papua New Guinea, and they decide that they will march across the Owen Stanley Range, which is a particularly high ridge of mountains in New Guinea, to prevent the to, to seize Port Moresby. Now it's um on their march from north to south that one of the great untold stories or the great undertold stories of World War II um occurs. And they uh, the Japanese uh, were met uh, by a far smaller force of very uh, inexperienced green australian troops you have to bear in mind that most of the the best divisions of Aust- of the australian army were committed either in north africa or they had been taken prisoner in singapore so these were um the you know the uh, the home guard if you will um and they are um they fight a uh, a bloody campaign a are pushed back by the japanese But as the Japanese overextend their lines, overextend their supply lines, um, the Met and are subsequently um, victim to all manner of tropical diseases and um, uh, food shortages and hunger, their campaign grinds to a halt. And they are soundly defeated by the Australians in the end. Um, it's something that MacArthur will allow the Australians no credit for, much to his, uh, his shame, really. Um, and the, the Japanese um, wind up having being inflicted upon them the first major land defeat of the war by a far smaller, far, far smaller, less well-equipped and less well-trained uh, force. And why does this happen? Well, partly it happens because of the you know the fighting resolve of the Australians, um, and in large part it happens because the Japanese have overextended themselves. An almost identical situation occurs at uh, Kohima and Imphal in 1944 when the Japanese decide they're going to have a one last roll of the dice in trying to unseat the British from India and they're going to try to invade northeast India and, at, um, and when they are defeated at Kohima um, by, again in a, a, a last ditch desperate attempt to keep them out uh, by a far smaller force they're forced to march back across Burma and it's the march back across Burma that kills most of them and the road back into Burma was known in uh, by the Japanese army as the Road of Bones. So, what we have here, if we have these two, look at these two scenarios. We well, have the first, the explosive growth of the Japanese Empire, and the Japanese Empire probably reached um, after the fall of Singapore probably reached its uh, its logical possible size. Attempts to um, attempts at further invasions and further conquests after that two or three month period of uh, of conquest are fairly dismal failures uh, the americans fight a couple of uh, pyrrhic victories against the the japanese and i'll talk in a later podcast about guadalcanal um, but, the, but ultimately, the rollback of the Japanese empire uh, happens over the next two to three years. And it happens because Japanese militarist nationalist fascism is really incapable of producing the right kinds of ideas in a way, the right kinds of thoughts and arguments that will create a sustainable war machine. And I'll give you just one example. After the Battle of the Coral Sea, the attrition rate of Japanese pilots was lower than that of the Americans. The Americans lost more pilots than the Japanese did, but the Japanese can't afford really to lose any pilots. The Americans, I'm not saying that the American lives are more expendable than Japanese, but the Americans had training schools of pilots and mass production of aircrafts. You know, America produces over 100,000 aircrafts during the war. The Japanese don't believe in... um, the, in in this system of uh, pilot training, to them, um, particularly to the Japanese military, which was um, influenced by these kind of rather romantic and perhaps uh, apocryphal um, tales of the of the samurai and Japanese uh, Japan's um, late medieval and early modern past, you no know, of the kind of the sixteenth and seventeenth centuries. They liked to present the pilots in their air force as really these kind of samurai of the air. There weren't meant to be lots of them. They were meant to be a kind of a rather exclusive order um, of, of chivalric warriors um, to, to coin a more western term. Um, and they and therefore uh, the the actual number of pilots was limited. This is OK when you're fighting a different kind of war. But when you're fighting a kind of a mass total war, like World War II um, manifested itself to be, it's a, it's a disastrous policy. The uh, amount of good flyers that were shot down and replaced by mediocre flyers who survived the war tends to suggest that it really is just a numbers game. It is about putting enough men in the air for long enough to win battles and it doesn't matter how many skilled warriors you have ultimately if the other side has ten times more average ones you're going to lose and so this mindset um, pervaded many other aspects of the the Japanese um, Japan's war machine's ability to resupply itself and re-equip itself um, from basic logistics like sort of food, um, fuel, medicines and equipment through to the supplying of um, new troops and Japan could not afford really to lose m- several catastrophic battles in a row Japan had an army made for conquest but not made for a long term total war whilst externally it gives us that impression that that's exactly what it was capable of doing. Uh, ultimately the kind of the, there were serious structural weaknesses within the Japanese war machine. Okay, so as I mentioned in, previously in this podcast Keep an eye out for Red Sun at War Part 3, that should be um, on your ebook bookshelves in uh, a few weeks' time. If you're really anxious to learn more about the Pacific War, you can read my Red Sun Rising, um, available on Kindle and other platforms um, Red Sun at War Part 1 and Red Sun at War Part 2. Red Sun at War being the attack on Pearl Harbour and Red Sun at War Part Two being the fall of uh, the uh, Dutch East Indies, Malaya and Singapore. Anyway, thanks for listening and I look forward to telling you more about modern history on the next Explaining History podcast. Thank you very much. Bye-bye.
0: Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with quins.